Well, it's a privilege. Uh, it's been a good morning already. Some great songs that we sang together and what um, amazing truths. And uh, thanks, Isaiah, for leading us to God and praying and crying out to God for us. And I um, am just so thankful that we get to study God's word together. I hope we never take it for granted that we're able to come together as his people and listen to him speak through his word. Uh, God is with us and he does speak to us and he speaks to us in the scriptures and that is huge. And uh, we are going to be doing something a little different for the next little while uh, on Sunday mornings. We've uh, spent a little time in the Gospel of Luke the past couple of months and we're going to come back to the Gospel of Luke so that's not done. But we're going to take it in sections, uh, Luke. So like we looked at the introduction to Luke, chapters 1 and 2. And then next we'll look at uh, chapters 3 and 4 as Jesus prepares for ministry. And then after that we'll look at Jesus presenting himself to Israel in chapters 4 through 9. But since uh, Luke is such a, a big book, long book, I'm going to split it up a little like that so I can talk to you about some other things that I... I think are really important for us as a church, a little more quickly, a little more focused. Uh, it's amazing how much of what I want to say is there in Luke, but it will take us a while. Uh, so for example, I want us to take a little time and talk about what kind of church God wants us to be. What kind of church does God want us to be? Specifically, I want to look at some passages in the Bible and think together about the way those truths should impact our church culture. And uh, culture, I know, is a little bit of a funny word, but obviously we've got a culture, a way of, of doing things uh, that over time becomes a pattern and that sort of sets the tone for us as a church. It's there and uh, we don't even really notice it because we've been around it so long. It's just how we do things. It's how we relate to one another. And that's not just us, of course. Every group does, uh, if they are together long enough. There are things that seem normal and obvious, and there are things that don't seem normal, that seem strange, that just aren't done. Ways of thinking and ways of talking, ways of acting. Uh, Ray Ortland, he's a pastor, uh, author. He talks about gospel doctrine and gospel culture. So there's what we believe, gospel doctrine, and we absolutely cannot get that wrong. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But there's also gospel culture. There's a way of living that matches up with what we say we believe, which of course means that there's also a way of living that doesn't. And we have to think about that. We have to connect the dots. For one thing, because if we don't, often we just default back to whatever culture we're used to without even realizing it a lot of the time because it's just so normal to us. We say we believe certain things and what we say is accurate, but the way we live is, is different. I remember when I was living in Africa, so South Africa, you know, uh, racism is a big problem. South Africa, you think apartheid probably. And uh, there were people while we were living there who were definitely out and out racist. So if you ask them what they believe, they'll, they'll tell you what they believe. And they had problems with what they believed about people. So there's like, you might say, problems with their doctrine. But of course, there were other people who would never say 
that they were racist. And if you asked them what they believed, you would be like, yeah, that's right. You, you're really saying you believe the right things. But you stand next to them when they're interacting with someone who has a different ethnic background than they do, and you're like, whoa, where, where is that tone of voice coming from? And honestly, sometimes they don't even notice. If you say something to them, they're like, what, what are you talking about? It was their culture, and their culture didn't match up with their doctrine. That was a, a, a problem even in the Bible, actually. Paul in Galatians chapter 2. And Galatians is a book that's all about justification by faith alone. You remember? And Paul in Galatians chapter 2 is talking to Peter. It's one of the high points in the Bible in terms of tension, I suppose. And again, it's Ray Ortland who points this out. But Paul's talking to Peter, and they have the same doctrine. Actually, in Galatians, Paul's pretty... He works hard to stress that he and the apostles have the same doctrine. Paul and Peter have the same doctrine. They both believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and yet Galatians 2, Paul's rebuking Peter, and he actually says, I opposed him to his face, which is huge. And, and you know why? I mean, that's a pretty big deal, opposing Peter. But you know why? It was because Peter was promoting a culture that didn't match up with gospel doctrine. He taught justification by faith alone, but at that moment, by his way of life and the, the way of life that he was promoting, it, it didn't match up with justification by faith alone. It's possible to believe something, we all know this, it's possible to believe something and not live in a way that matches up with what you believe. In fact, that's not just possible, it's likely if we don't work at it. This is part of what we're supposed to be doing as a church, making the connections. In Titus, and that's the book we're going to look at today, Paul is speaking to Titus, and he tells Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach the things or speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, or teach what accords with sound doctrine, English Standard Version. And I always love that because Paul doesn't say there what you might expect. He doesn't say, Titus, speak sound doctrine. And he doesn't say that because I think he assumes already that Titus is speaking sound doctrine, which is great and important. But Paul is telling Titus here, that's not enough. He also needs to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. These are believers who became believers in Crete. Crete was a terrible culture. And part of Titus's role there was to help those believers know how to live in a way that matched up with what they believed. And you read Titus and you see this is important. Our culture can either make the gospel look beautiful or it can actually make the gospel look ugly. Our culture matters. And so over the next couple months, I want us to look at the Bible and think about specific ways that gospel doctrine should impact our church culture here at Cornerstone. And I wrote down 16. I don't know if we'll get down to all 16, but... Uh, and there's more, I'm sure, but I try to pick out 16 words that I am praying will so characterize our church, the way we think, the way we act, the way we feel, the way that we go about things at Cornerstone Bible, that they sort of become our culture, our church culture. And we're going to start with one of the most basic today, as I've been uh, thinking about American culture in particular and what's normal and the Bible and trying to identify a number of ways that gospel doctrine should make us 
so different as a church from our culture that people can see it, they notice it. I mean, they, they come, they get to know us, and they walk away and they say, you know what? That is a fill-in-the-blank kind of church. <laughs> that church is like that. And we would be like, yeah, I'm glad you saw that because that's exactly who we want to be as a church. That is what's important to us. And so I want to begin today by talking about being a needy church, a needy church. That's the word, the adjective, needy. What kind of people go to that church, Cornerstone Bible Church? That's a needy church. Those are people who really see themselves as needy. Or I guess another way to say it, I want to talk about us being a humble church or talk about us being a poor in spirit church, really. But I like the word needy just because it's a little more surprising. We don't usually think of needy as a good value. Like, what do you want your kids to be like when they grow up? You know what? Needy. I, I want them to know they're needy. Or what kind of organization do you want to be part of? What kind of organization do you want to be? We want to be a needy one. Uh, where people really know and feel and are honest and open about their neediness. In fact, this is one of the things that I've been most struck by coming back into American culture. We really like to think of ourselves as self-reliant. It's kind of clear. An attitude of, I can do this, I've got this, is a value in our culture. We see someone who says, I don't know, or looks like he's unsure, we see that as a weakness often. If you think about what embarrasses you in others or what offends you when someone thinks that about you, you usually get an idea of what's important in your culture because there are things you think are so embarrassing or offensive that aren't embarrassing or offensive to a lot of people around the world. And as Americans, we tend to get embarrassed when someone looks like they don't know what they're doing. We get upset when someone treats us as helpless. We tend to pity people who can't take care of themselves or who are dependent on help from other people. And we don't like to admit that about ourselves, ever. We don't mind uh, some saying, I have some needs, of course, because we know everyone has some needs. We're clear about that. We do mind feeling helpless or especially being seen as helpless. You know how sometimes when you're talking to someone who is in trouble and uh, there are some people who totally know they're needy. They're just so desperate. They're not arguing with you. They're just truly and honestly looking for any help that they can get. But there are other people who are asking for help, but not just any kind of help. They want to tell you how to help them. And if you speak to them like they're really needy, it becomes almost like an argument really quickly if they feel like you're treating them like they're desperate. That's been one of the uh, kind of funny things coming back, talking honestly to people who are homeless. The difference in talking to homeless uh, people in Africa and talking to homeless people here which I think, though, is how a lot of us go through life. We don't mind people thinking we need help, but we definitely mind them thinking that we are helpless, which is really a problem. It is a problem 
for sure in our relationship with God. One of the biggest barriers to knowing and enjoying and serving God is a sense of self-sufficiency. You show me a person who has a high opinion of themselves, I will show you a person who isn't growing in their relationship with God. He's not gonna appreciate the cross. He's not gonna be repenting. He's not gonna really be coming to God's word to learn. He's gonna have a hard time receiving rebuke. He's gonna have a hard time listening. He's gonna be quick to complain. He's gonna be critical of others. But of course, again, you know what makes this so confusing for us is uh, sometimes I think that there are ways in which this can-do spirit seems helpful. Helpful. It's like a pseudo-virtue, really. It's a false virtue, but it looks like a virtue sometimes. And the virtue, of course, is depending on God and having hope and believing that God can accomplish more than you realize. But sometimes the positivity that comes from feeling like you can do it looks like something good. So again, I'm always talking about Africa, but in Africa, they kind of have a saying, where for an African, everything feels impossible. For an American, anything is possible. I remember talking to a South African who loved to travel to America for business and do business with American businesses because Americans are always like, what's the problem? We can do this. I know we would always be surprised living there by how quickly people would say, uh, no, you, you can't do that. And we would be like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. We can figure out a way to do that. We're Americans, right? Not Americans. <laughs> how, many, how many movies, how many songs, how many commercials, how many stories are all revolving around, this is America. You can do whatever you want to do. Rely on yourself. You're enough. If you can't trust in yourself, who can you trust? which can create some real problems for us spiritually. That's the thing. First and foremost, because it's the opposite of what the gospel tells us about ourselves. If we think of ourselves as fundamentally good and capable, if we feel like that, we're going to be denying and living in a way that's the opposite of how the Bible says salvation works. If you'll take your Bible, if you haven't already, and turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, I want to think with you for a minute about what the Bible teaches about salvation, because this is one of our core gospel doctrines as a church. This we have to get right. And this is one of the best places to talk about salvation, because apparently Paul's using an old creedal statement here. Already by the time that he's writing, they had a kind of systematic theology or mini creeds, you might say. It, could even be a hymn, actually, that was common in the church of that day about how God goes about saving people. And he's using it in the context for the purpose of motivating believers to pursue good works. This is practical theology. It's practical. It has a purpose to change a culture, ultimately, but it's theology, and it's really thorough if you look at it. Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And I just love that way of describing Jesus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there's almost everything 
in there that you could want. You can see how Paul talks about our need for salvation. He talks about the means of salvation. He talks about the blessings we experience as a result of salvation. And we'll talk about all that another time, I'm sure. But today, I just want to look here at verse 5, where Paul talks about the source of salvation, the source of salvation. Where does salvation come from? Because you find Paul's answer at the beginning of verse 5, and it's just three words. And yet these are three of the hardest words in the Bible for us to understand. You think propitiation is a hard word to understand, justification. These words, these three words are three of the hardest words in the Bible for us to understand and believe. And yet they're three of the absolute most important and best words in the entire Bible. Because verse 5, Paul says, he saved us. He saved us. God, he God, probably talking specifically about God the Father, because you can see verse 6, he says he poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, but obviously God is one, so we can say God the Father is Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. He saved, rescued, delivered us. In other words, our salvation depends on God and God alone. The gospel is good news about salvation. There is rescue, there is deliverance, and one of the fundamental things the Bible says about salvation is that you need it. And God's the only one who can do it. He's the one who does it. This is like Christianity 101. You talk to a Hindu and you talk about what it means to be a Hindu and they're gonna talk about this or that. You sit down with a Muslim and you talk about what it means to be a Muslim and they're gonna talk about this or that. You sit down with a Christian and you talk about what it means to be a Christian and they're gonna talk about salvation and they're gonna emphasize that God alone is the one who does it. Nothing in your salvation starts with you. Everything in your salvation depends on God. God alone is the sinner's hope of salvation. The only thing you contribute to your salvation, as someone has explained, is the sin from which you need to be saved. We are the problem. God is the solution. Which, of course, is this like absolutely stunning truth that should change everything about us as a church. That we need to be saved. We're people who believe we need to be saved. And we're people who believe only God can save us. If you want to pick one doctrine that should change our church culture, it's this one. And yet so often it doesn't change church cultures. You can think of so many problems in church cultures. Racism. Gossip. Lack of prayer, lack of openness, fear of man, fear of being exposed, impatience, anger, inward focus, hypocrisy. I can save myself ways of dealing with sin, a lack of mercy, a lack of movement toward the needy and the vulnerable. All symptoms of how hard it is for us to continue believing what the Bible teaches about our neediness and about how salvation works. I mean, I think... We know we're needy. We know that intellectually. We know we needed to be saved. We know we couldn't save ourselves. But I think the problem is we don't always feel very needy. We don't always feel like we need to be saved. We don't always feel like we couldn't save ourselves. And it shows up in a million different ways. For, for example, there's how we often respond to the trouble that comes into our lives. What do we do, what do, we do first? Do we pray? Helpless people pray. No, we usually, what do we do? We worry. And why do we worry? 
What is worry? It's praying to yourself. We worry because we're looking to ourselves. We're trying to figure out how we can do this. We really believe it's dependent on us. We've got to find a way to fix this. Or you can think about how many of us might struggle with someone who's younger than us or we think isn't as smart as us correcting us or actually having a real influence in our lives. I think a lot of us, this is where our talk about discipleship ends. It stops. We don't see how needy other people are, so we don't feel a sense of urgency. And we don't see how needy we are, so we can talk about discipleship all day long, but we don't feel a need to let anybody into our lives where they can actually influence us. Or you can think about how we respond to our own sin as an example, because how often do we repent? And you know, I could get it even a little more personal. I could ask, how often do you repent to God? I mean, what are you repenting of recently? Literally going to God and, and asking for forgiveness. And I ask that because all too often we're not repenting on a regular basis and it's not because we're not sinning. It's because we don't feel very sinful. We don't feel very needy. And it impacts our prayer life and it impacts our worship and it impacts the way we treat other sinners as well. How do we respond to people who are difficult to love? I read this quote recently, super convicting. I'll only read half of it because the rest is too convicting, but I'll read this half. One of the best ways to test our grasp of God's mercy is to consider how we treat other sinners, especially different kinds of sinners than us. How do we treat other sinners, even the ones in our own home? We get angry often, right? And yet, why? Why do we get sinfully angry and impatient? And why do we wonder? Why do some people never seem to get their act together? I mean, if we know the only possible solution for sin is the grace of God, why do we respond to sinners the way we do? We are needy, but we don't always feel very needy. That's the problem. So we're hard, and we don't pray, and we're not really enjoying the cross. It's a problem. We're a needy church, but that can't just be on our doctrinal statements. That's got to be deep in our hearts to the point where it impacts our way of life, our culture, which is why I want to just stop and look at this passage and remember. Remember, the other day I was thinking, what do I do if I don't feel needy? I'm needy, but I don't always feel needy, and that's part of the problem. What do I do? One thing I do is I go to God's word and I remember and I preach the gospel to myself and I preach what's real to myself. And Paul gives four proofs here that the source of our salvation has to be God. And these are familiar, but they have to get off the page into our hearts. And so they are four places we need to look to remind ourselves of just how needy we really are. First, look back at who you were before God saved you. Paul writes, Verse 3, for you also once were foolish, which of course isn't the way we like to think of ourselves, but the fact is you may or you may not have been smart intellectually as an unbeliever, but either way, you were not willing to use your intelligence to understand truth. That's the problem. You weren't neutral when it came to God. Here you had a mind, and it's a gift from God, And your mind is given to you by God to help you distinguish between what's right and wrong. But your mind as an unbeliever was corrupted and broken so that you actually loved error. It's like when it came to God, you were bent towards the wrong answer, towards making the wrong choice about God if you were given the option. 
Even more than that, you weren't just bent. Your mind was actually hostile towards God and to what he taught about salvation. You didn't like it. If truth came close, you ran far. You were unwilling to use your mental faculties, your mind, in order to understand. You actually preferred not understanding because you wanted to do whatever you wanted to do, and you didn't want anyone to stop you. Paul says you were foolish, you were disobedient, you were living your life breaking God's law. It was like you were greedy about sin. You were looking for opportunities to disobey. You hated true holiness, and you were willing to work hard at doing the wrong thing, which feels intense to a lot of us to have Paul say that. And we're like, no, I wasn't against that against God's law, but actually you were that against God's law. I know you might have done things that looked like obedience, but that's only when they suited you or when they would get you something that you wanted, because at the core, you were about you. The, the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And he's the creator of everything and the owner of everything. And he's the one who's worthy of being loved. And yet you didn't keep that command one day in your life. You were too busy loving you. You were foolish. You didn't want to know the truth. You were disobedient. You wanted to do what's wrong. You were deceived, Paul says, led astray. And he's probably unpacking what being foolish and disobedient means now. You had been given this whole set of lies about yourself, the world, and the nature of God, and you believed them. And this is proof. You were so foolish. I wonder if you've ever met someone who was believing a lie, and you try to tell them the truth. And... Uh, even when you tell him the truth and you show him that it's true, he still wants to keep believing his lie. That's what you were like. If the facts didn't fit your interpretation of the world, who needs facts? You didn't let that stop you. You just changed the facts so they would fit your interpretation. You were deceived. And again, that didn't bother you so much, being deceived, because it let you do what you wanted to do. You were, Paul says, enslaved. You were disobedient to God, and honestly, you probably felt like that was fine because you felt like you were making your own decisions and doing your own thing. But Paul says the reality is you weren't. That's not how disobedience works. You were a slave. You weren't free. You were held in bondage. And you want proof of that, that the, the, the person who seems the freest, take away his idol and see how he acts. And what is crazy is that you were held in bondage by your very own against God desires and pleasures. You live for self, you worship self. When self called, you had to obey, which resulted in all kinds of broken relationships with others. Paul continues, he says, you were passing your days in malice and envy, hating and hated by one another. It's important we don't have a fairy tale view of our pre-salvation condition. You know how humans are. It's easy for us to forget how bad things were. Kind of like women who have babies. When they're going through it, they're like, that's the worst pain ever. And then a few years later, it's like, let's have another kid. We can be like that when it comes to what we were like before God saved us. It's hard for us to, to, to remember, partly because we don't like seeing ourselves that way. Remember when... Uh, Caitlin was younger. She was really afraid of, of dogs. And so we used to go over to a friend's house and they had a, a big black dog and she would see the dog and then she would just start to scream. 
But then after a little while, I guess screaming would get tiring for her. So she figured out a new response. Instead of screaming, whenever she saw the dog, she just wouldn't look at it. And every time the dog came close, she would just turn her head. And no matter how hard I tried to get her to look at the dog, she wouldn't look at the dog. She would turn her head the other way, which is how a lot of people respond when they hear what the Bible teaches about what we're like apart from Christ. They won't look at it. We don't like to see ourselves that way. We love spiritual Photoshop. And when the Bible gives us these pictures, we like to make ourselves look better than we really were. And so we excuse our sin. Someone might be watching pornography, but they'll say, at least I'm not living in adultery. Or they might be having one night stands, but they'll say, at least I feel bad about it. They magnify the importance of the, the good things they do in order to minimize the seriousness of the bad things they do. You talk to someone who's prejudiced and they'll say, but I go to church. Or you talk to a prostitute and she'll say, maybe I'm a good mother, I care for my daughter, that's why I'm doing this. Or you talk to a person who's lying bold-faced and they'll say, at least I'm nice and I'm thinking about people's feelings. It doesn't really matter what sins people are involved in. You find that they have an amazing ability to excuse away their sins, to do spiritual Photoshop, even to the worst of them. Maybe they'll change the name of the sin. I'm not a, a drunk, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't commit sexual morality, I made love. Or they'll use common little sayings to justify their sins. Boys will be boys, you only live once. They blame their actions on everyone but themselves. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done what I did. They'll use the world's opinion to justify their behavior. I'm not an angry person. I just have get mad at people randomly syndrome. <laughs> they bring up religious things that they do as an excuse. They'll twist the scripture to defend what they do. They'll make selfishness the ultimate standard for right and wrong. God just wants me to be happy. He can't have a problem with this. You'll find most people will do whatever it takes to maintain an image of themselves as good people and will do anything they can to avoid seeing themselves any differently, which is a problem. Because if you're gonna appreciate what the Bible teaches about salvation, you absolutely 100% have to see that on your own, you were utterly and completely helpless. You can't fix yourself. And you wouldn't even have fixed yourself if you could. I mean, think about it, you were a fool. How do fools respond to wisdom? You wanted to sin. How does a person who wants to do the wrong thing react to the right thing. You were deceived. How does a person who fully believes a lie respond to the truth? There is, one man explains, in unconverted men, no spiritual life, no warmth of affection towards God and holiness. You were spiritually dead. If you take an honest look at who you were, it's obvious you could never save yourself. Salvation has to be all God. The source of salvation can't be us. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were enslaved. Second, a second proof you can't save yourself. Look at what you deserved. Look at who you were. Look at what you deserved. I know if you look down, Paul doesn't totally spell it out here, but I think he wants our minds to at least wander that way, given how he begins verse 4. He says, for we were... Ourselves, once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but, which is an important word. Whenever you see that word in the Bible, you're like, yes, 
but. And here it's making a contrast. In other words, it's not like the word and, the way Paul's using it, because and kind of continues a thought. So if I say to you, Marta was nice to me and I gave her a hug, you would not be surprised if I gave her a hug. Marta did this and I responded the way you would expect. I responded to Marta in a way that matched up with how she acted. But if I wanted to say something unexpected, I would use the word but instead. I was mean and selfish, but Marta gave me a hug anyway. When you hear the way I acted, you're surprised by the way Marta responded, which is how Paul's using the word at the beginning of verse 4. He's making a contrast between the way we acted and God responded. He's contrasting what we deserve from God and what we received instead. I mean, the whole argument here is based on the assumption that we're not getting what we deserved. What did we deserve? Think, what would happen to you if God treated you the way you deserved? We're talking about God. We're talking about someone who delights in justice, someone who always does what's right, someone whose eyes are too pure to look on evil. And we're talking about you, someone who was foolish. And what's God's attitude towards fools? Ecclesiastes 5.4, he has no pleasures in fools. Psalm 5.5, a fool will not stand in the presence of God. And you were foolish and you were someone who was disobedient. And what's God's attitude towards those who disobey? Colossians 3.6 says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. You were foolish, you were disobedient, you were someone who was deceived and loved being deceived. And what's God's attitude towards lies? Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 tells us that God hates a lying tongue. Jeremiah 9 says that he will avenge himself on those who practice deceit. You were foolish, you were disobedient, you were deceived, you were someone who was enslaved to lusts and pleasures. And Romans 8, 6 says to be fleshly minded is death. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 23 says that the end of those who set their minds on earthly things is destruction. And if we keep going, you were foolish, you were deceived, you were disobedient, you were enslaved to lust and pleasure and malicious and envious. And think about the judgment in store for those who are malicious and envious. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that those who practice such things are deserving of death. And 1 John 3, 14 and 15 says, no one who hates his brother has eternal life abiding in him. If you look at who God is, and if you look at who you were, and if you look, uh, look at what the Bible says about God's judgment on people like that, what do you expect? Paul to say in verse 4, you expect and, not but. You expect you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, envious, malicious, and when the wrath and fury of God appeared, he damned us. You had a problem. And this problem was bigger than any problem you ever had in any other part of your life. You never had a problem this big in any other area of your life. And you come face to face with that, with who you were and what you deserved. And it's like you're standing on the brink of hell. And there's no way you're going to be able to go away from that thinking you have the ability to save yourself. I mean, it's, 
It's like here you're seeing God in his holiness and you're standing before his eternal throne and you're seeing the majestic angels with their wings covering their faces because they recognize the distance between themselves as creatures and the almighty creator of the universe. And you're seeing your sin as you've never seen it before in all its horror. You're seeing all these years of foolishness, lies, lust, and blasphemies all gathered up into this one big lifetime of rebellion against God. And you're seeing the way that he hates sin and how his eyes are too pure to look on evil and you're seeing that it's completely right that one sin deserves an eternity in hell and we might even imagine you're hearing the groans and moans of those who are being punished in hell and you're seeing this and you're hearing all this are you really going to be thinking that you somehow are able to make things right I guarantee you see what you deserve and you're not going to be thinking that you can save yourself the source of salvation is definitely not you Third, look at who you were, look at what you deserved, look at how God responded. Again, Paul writes, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And maybe just take a note of the word when. Because when indicates timing. In other words, Paul is saying, you were this way. Verse 3, foolish, deceived, all that. And verse 5, he's saying, you are this way now, washed, renewed, justified. And verse 4, all this happened when? He saved us when? Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say God saved us when we finally started seeking him. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say God saved us when he looked down from heaven and saw that we were really good people and deserved to be saved. Or when he saw that inside we really wanted to know the truth. Or when we started reading our Bibles and doing lots of good things. Or when he saw that there was some inner good deep down buried in there. And we really did love our neighbor. He doesn't say any of that. That's not when Paul says God acted to save us. Instead, it is when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for man appeared, he saved us. God, our Savior, being God the Father, and the kindness of God and his love for man being Jesus Christ, and appeared being a point in time. Jesus' incarnation, and I think we can expand it to include his life and death and resurrection. And the point is, Paul's rooting our salvation not in what we deserved, but in God's action in Jesus, God saved us when Jesus appeared, not when we earned it. If you think about what you were like when God acted to save you, you were God's enemy. God did not send his son to die for his friends. That's not when he saved us. He sent his son to die for enemies, not for loyal subjects, but for rebels, not for the excellent, but for the hateful. When God acted to save us, he, and he was looking at us as people, he wasn't looking at people who could help themselves, but those who could not help themselves. You know, it's so hard for us to get our minds around because it's so different than how we normally think. If we see someone doing something kind for someone else, this was funny when we were living in Africa, how hard it was for people to, to get this. If, if, if someone would see someone doing something kind for someone else, they would usually think, there must be something about that person that he's doing it for that motivated him to do that. 
because that's how we normally worked. We even had somebody who lived in our house for a long time, and uh, we had to have long talks about this because it was tempting for him to start thinking, I must be something super special uh, that, I, that I'm able to live here. And he thought that because that's how the world normally works, but that's not how it worked with God and with salvation because not only did we not deserve it, we didn't desire it. If God had waited to send his son until we wanted salvation, not, in t- not even until we deserved it, until we wanted it, we would never be saved. We didn't make the first move. God did. We were living in ignorance, so he sent Jesus to be our wisdom. We were living in disobedience, so he sent his son to obey for us. We were living in lives, so he sent the, his son to be the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We were living enslaved to our desires, so he sent his son to be our redemption and to purchase our freedom. We were living in pride, so his son humbled himself. We were living in hatred towards one another, so God responded by revealing his love to us through Jesus Christ. You look at the incarnation, and that means God becoming man, and you cannot think, he must have done that because I'm so worthy. No, how can you be worthy of that? You weren't worthy of that. Instead, you look at the incarnation, how God saved you, and you ought to think, this is love. This is what it means. This is pure, absolute grace that God would choose to love someone like me, that he would act. I mean, God, why, God, why? It's not because of me. It's because of your mercy. This is amazing grace. If you look at who you were, if you look at what you deserved, if you look at when God acted to save you, how he saved you, it's clear, salvation depends on God's mercy, not on your righteousness. Finally, fourth, look at why God saved you. And this one is just straight up. So it's like, if any of the other proofs were confusing, this is really clear. And maybe that's because sometimes we just need it to be said directly. And so in verse five, in order to magnify the mercy of God, Paul identifies why God saved us as clearly as he could. He writes, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, which is very direct. And in the original language, it's even more striking because Paul places the phrase, not by works of righteousness at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. So it's like he's rushing to deny any ground for salvation outside the mercy of God. Before he even says, he saved us, he says, not by works. And even the way he puts it, actually not by works done by us. There's a contrast there. It's not a work done by us. Salvation's a work done by God. And in fact, he stresses you're not saved by some mixture of God's mercy and your works in that he positions the two as opposites, not by this, but by this. When it comes to salvation, the forgiveness of sins, acceptance with God, the hope of resurrection, heaven, salvation in all its forms, you cannot look to what you do and what God has done through Jesus Christ at the same time. It's one or the other. It's impossible to depend on yourself and on God. God saves completely or not at all. That's like lesson number one in the doctrine of salvation. Saving faith refuses to divide the work of salvation between what you can do for yourself and what God has done for you through Jesus. This is not a 50-50 effort. This is not even a 99-1 effort. If we look to ourselves and our works 
And what we do, there's only damnation. You have to understand that. If you're going to be saved, it has to be through Jesus and Jesus alone. And you know what? That's true for all of us. Every single last one of us. There's not a single person in this room today who would have sought God on his own. There's not a single person here, look around, who doesn't deserve hell. There, there's not a single person here who didn't need Jesus to die in their place. There's not a single person here who earned their salvation. If you look at who you were, what you deserved, how God responded, if you look at why God saved us, it's not because of works done by us, but according to mercy. You need to hear me now. The only place you can be saved from the wrath of God is in the mercy of God that's been revealed through the work of Christ on the cross. That's the only place. God and God alone is the source of salvation, which we know. We know. But if we really knew it, it should impact our church culture. Right? That's where we're headed today. We are a needy church. But are we a needy church? God has to save us. We absolutely cannot save ourselves. And this should impact the way we think and feel and act and speak and relate to others. How? How should this impact our way of life? I mean, what does a needy church look like? Quickly, let me give you three characteristics. One, a needy church is a hopeful church. In the world, those two words don't go together, obviously. People are like, don't talk to me about my sin. That's a bummer. That makes me so depressed, which makes sense if I were looking to myself for salvation. Then needy doesn't end up being hopeful. It ends up being weird and depressed. But the thing is, we're not looking to ourselves for salvation. We're looking to God. And the good news is God is committed to saving needy people, people who, who know they are needy. In fact, actually, the only people who are saved are people who realize they have nothing to offer God. And every single person who is saved is, same, is saved the same way, the mercy of God. And so you know what? Neediness isn't the obstacle. Not knowing you're needy is the obstacle. Which means you meet a person who's feeling self-reliant, self-sufficient. That's the person you're nervous for. But you meet a person who doesn't feel adequate, who looks at himself and says, why would God love someone like me? And you're much more hopeful. Because the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. And so you say, how can God love someone like me when I'm such a sinner? And I say, sure, if salvation were by works, then yeah, you could expect God to look at you and say, what are you doing here? Come back when you're better. But again, the gospel says the opposite. It says Christ died for the ungodly. And so you being ungodly doesn't mean Jesus can't save you or that God can't love you because that's exactly who Christ died to save. And why did he die to save sinners like that? It's because God loves them. I mean, are you understanding me now? We should be a hopeful church. There's a pastor named Jack Miller who used to say, cheer up, you are a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. 
God's love for you is not dependent on your worthiness of being loved by God. That's not how salvation works. I remember uh, I was out walking one day and, and realizing, this was a number of years ago now, but realizing I was repenting of the same sin that I had repented of years and years before. And it wasn't like I knew I'd sinned the same sin again. It was like I was repenting of the same actual sin. And I was sitting there praying, and that's where my prayers when I would walk would often go. And I realized, you know what? I've been repenting of this same sin for about 10 or 15 years now. <laughs> Anytime I was out walking, and that's how I would pray. And then I realized, what is that? That's not humility before God. That's a lack of faith that God really is the one who saves sinners. And I was acting like maybe there's just this one sin that I have to atone for myself or that I've got to somehow add to Jesus's work and show God that I'm sad enough to, to get him to really forgive me. And that was connected to years before going around feeling like I was saved but mostly a big disappointment to God and sort of feeling like that was even right to feel because it looks like humility. But that's not humility. If I truly knew how needy I was, I would know my only hope is God. And I have hope because God makes promises to save sinners. God knows me. He knows how needy I am. And he knows you. And he knows you are more sinful than you think you are. And yet, through Jesus, he's acted to provide salvation for sinners. A needy church is a hopeful church. God saves sinners. Second, a needy church is a humble church, which is really the key point I'm going after. God designed salvation in such a way that it requires humility. And one reason God designed salvation like that is because if God gave us any reason at all to think we contributed to our salvation, we would take it. And we would glory not in God and what he did, but in ourselves and what we did. I mean, we glory in ourselves even when salvation's all God. And so God designed salvation in such a way that it's all him, which means there's only one person we can boast in regarding to our, our salvation, and it's not us, it's God. It's like every time we want to boast, grace takes our hand and puts it over our mouths so that we can't boast in ourselves anymore. It won't let us. And that's so important to remember because the fact is, if you're a Christian here today, your life probably is going to be a little different than the people around you. If you're a Christian here today, you're not foolish anymore. You've you're, you're got foolish areas in your life, but you're not fundamentally foolish. You were disobedient, but you're seeking to be obedient now. You're not led astray. You've got the truth. You're free from slavery to sin. You can love others. You're going to be different, but why? That's the question. Why? It's all God. It's because God's been merciful, and that fact should make us humble. And if we're truly humble, that should cause us to have a very, very merciful and very, 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 very patient church culture. We hate sin because we believe it's so bad that we need to be saved from it. And I know sometimes people don't take sin seriously, and that's a problem. But another problem is to be so, and this is John Calvin here, I'm quoting, it's to be so rigorous that every little fault is enough to make us speak in tones of thunder. And there are church cultures like that where people are so easily offended and so hard on people. And you know what's at the root of that? C critical spirit, lots of anger, easily offended. You know what's at the root of that? John Calvin says, listen to this. 
You want to sit down. I'm glad you're sitting down. There is never any excessive rigor without cruelty, nor cruelty without pride. Now, here it is. I put this in bold print. Whoever despises his neighbor prizes himself too much. And we can add, is denying the gospel by the way he lives. Because if absolutely every single good thing we have as a church is a result of God's grace, how can we not show grace to, to others? A needy church is a merciful church, a church that's quick to forgive, a church that's very patient, a church that's hard to offend. There's no excuse for a lack of mercy. Personality, culture, way we were brought up, no. The gospel, we were foolish, we were all these things, but God. Do we believe that? We believe that. He saved us. That's basic Christian doctrine. But has it changed the way we live, our culture? And we have to ask that question. Are we hopeful that God loves us? Do we believe that we can change? Do we believe that other people can change? Do we define people by so many years ago? Are we humble? Are we done trying to impress people? On the other hand, are we done kind of being impressed by people? I'm not saying we shouldn't honor people or respect them, but sometimes it's a sign that we're forgetting how we're saved. When we put other people in positions that, that they're so superior to us, we're, we're all saved one way. The Apostle Paul, Hudson Taylor, you, me, it's all God. Are we a hopeful church? Are we a humble church? Are we able to be honest about our own sins and failings? A question I was asking lately, are we willing to fail in front of others? If we're not willing to fail in front of others, why? How do we respond when, when we mess up? And how do we respond when other people mess up? How do we treat sinners, especially sinners who are different kinds of sinners than us? Do we have the right gospel doctrine here at Cornerstone? God and God alone is the source of salvation. And do we have a church culture that matches up? Is it clear when people are looking at our way of life, our pattern of life, the way we relate to each other, the way we speak about each other, the way we relate to God, the way we respond to sinners, is it clear that we're a needy church? You know, that Cornerstone Bible Church, you know what kind of church that is? That is a needy church. Those people, it's clear, they know it's all God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that doctrine is so practical. It's so beautiful. And it's so practical. And we ask, Lord, you're such a patient, merciful God. We ask that you would continue to line our life up, not with what we used to believe before we were saved, but line our life up, line our actions, our words, our life up with this beautiful gospel truth that we've embraced. Only you can do this, Lord. Do it for the glory of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.